And when we get a chance to sit with something, then we can transform something that's negative into something that's positive and or constructive. That's for the betterment of people. Coming back to what I said earlier about accountability, we get to choose how we respond to something and then you know, turn our response into something that can actually better other people. In her book, Conversational Intelligence, Judith Glasser wrote, to get to the next level of greatness depends on the quality of our culture, which depends on the quality of our relationships, which depends on the quality of our conversations. Everything happens through conversations. Welcome to Conversations, powered by Quantivos. Hello, I'm Brian Gorman. I am the host of Conversations and a coach at Quantivos. My guest today is Yogi Aaron. Aaron is the founder of Blue Osa Yoga Retreat and Spa, and for many years had a yoga center here in New York City, and that's where I met Aaron. So welcome, Aaron. Thank you, Brian. It's so nice to be here and see you in this different light. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. So, Aaron, I learned not that you stood up in front of us and taught leadership, but as I reflected on the years I spent in the yoga studio with you, I learned a lot about leadership. And I'd really like to focus our conversation today on the leadership lessons that one can learn out of yoga. And I think what's important is yoga is a vehicle or a vessel for learning those lessons. It's not the only way you can learn them, but the lessons themselves are really important. Where I want to start is one of the things you used to say as we were doing yoga is make it effortless. And I can't count the number of times I cursed you under my breath <laughs> about that because there was nothing effortless in those first days and weeks and months of doing yoga. And then at one of the solstices, we were doing sun salutations. Now, for those who don't know, a sun salutation is a flow of 12 yoga poses. And we did that 108 times, which, if my math is correct, is 1,296 poses. And I realized, yes, I was working through the flow. Yes, I was sweating. And yes, I realized it was effortless. How does a leader make leadership effortless? I think that, I mean, by first of all, embodying that effortless quality, but what that means, like in terms of business, when you're running, you know, your own business, when you're being a leader to other people, you can't get caught up in the minutia of everything. And so that's part of it is like letting go of that effort to control every single little thing, you know, for better or for worse, you just, there's this point when you just have to let go. And then I also think too, that holding people as able and celebrating the people that 
you're leading their strengths, not always focusing on their weaknesses. And, you know, right now at Blue Osa, I have a huge team of people that work for me, about 25 more or less. And then I have also a bunch of um, volunteers that come and, and participate in our volunteer program at and do work for us. And one of the things I'm thinking a lot right now, the volunteers, especially because the job description is sort of broad and the expectation is broad. But one of the things I try to do in the, you know, the first time period when they come is find out what their strengths are and focus on then elevating those strengths and letting their unique brilliance shine through those strengths. So instead of like trying to turn them into something that they're not, rather than than trying to instead work on elevating what they're already good at. And, and then of course, coming back to being effortless, going, okay, they're gonna do what they're gonna do. I can't, you know, sometimes you get a great person that comes along and can churn out things quickly. And then you get these people that don't, but either way, you just have to let go of that. And something that my Adam, my business partner always reminds me of is sometimes we have to zoom out and go, what was the completed effort after a year? And when you have that perspective, when I can zoom out after a year and go, my God, look at everything that we as a collective did together, that then keeps me grounded for the next year when I'm, you know, bucking up against somebody who sometimes my New York A-type personality is like, why aren't you doing more? <laughs> why didn't you do it this way? <laughs> and then I remind myself, yeah, I have to kind of zoom out and remember, like, look at what we've done in the past as a collective. Um, and so I think that collectiveness keeps my help keeps me have a healthy perspective so that way it it allows me the space to come back to being effortless if that makes sense it does i think for me a couple of other pieces of that have entered my awareness after the fact one is it's a matter of focus you know if if i'm there paying attention to how hard i'm working I'm working hard and that's what I'm feeling. If I'm there experiencing really the, the fullness of the moment and in, in the yoga studio, as well as many times in the workplace, the energy of the community, then the movement, the effort, if you will, um, sort of fades into the background. Uh -huh. The other piece, which comes to what you were talking about with the zooming out for me, is if I'm in the flow, if I'm in the zone, I can be busting my butt. I can be dead dog tired at the end of the day. And I'm totally energized and fulfilled by what I've been doing. It was effortless. I think one of the highlights and lowlights, if I will, of the time that, that we spent together was a trip to India. And 
there were many, many lessons I learned on that trip. <laughs> I don't know if you remember, but we were doing a trekking up in the Him Himalayas. Not too long in, you put me at the front of the group. Do you remember why? Um, I didn't, I don't remember doing that. And I definitely would not remember why. <laughs> no problem. I, I do. And I always will. You said, no matter what the terrain, you keep a constant pace. Yes. And again, I think that's an important message for leadership that sometimes the terrain is smooth. Sometimes it's rough and we still have to keep moving forward. Yeah. Um, I, re I remember I journaled was carrying a very little journal because uh, <laughs> the less weight we had to carry, the better. Uh, but I remember still one of my journal entries was sometimes all I can think of is where do I put my walking sticks and my feet next mm -hmm. so that there is a next place after that. And again, I think that's an important lesson for leadership. Sometimes we need to look down and see where we're stepping. To know if we're still on the right path. Yeah. You've done a lot of Himalayan treks along the way. And I want to come back to ours because there were some important lessons, other lessons I learned. But what are some of the leadership lessons that came out for you in those treks? Um, you know, that was, as you remember, was a very um, big momentous moment for me. It was when I broke my leg in the Himalayas. But there was also something else that was kind of going on simultaneously in the background, which I don't know if you remember or not, or if I, I know I publicized it a little bit, um, a little bit, but not a lot. And there was, I led a retreat about four weeks before that trip. And it was a men's group. It was a men's, it was a men's yoga retreat done with another organization. So I was brought in as a guest teacher. And during that retreat, I had five people that kind of took the attention away from the retreat, if you will, to complain about a lot of stuff. And after, you know, teaching yoga for a long time and doing the work that I'd done, it was a real shock to me because this was at that moment was 2007. So I'd already been teaching, you know, yoga to in my studio in New York for the better part of seven years. I had a lot of experience leading retreats. I was a program trainer. And then all of a sudden to have these people come out and just kind of literally yell at me <laughs> in the room, in a circle that was called a heart circle. They should call it the yelling circle it really shook me to my foundation. And so when I led that group to India, which you were on, there was a part of me that was facing a lot of self-doubt. And, and then as you recall, during even our trip, I had, I think it was three or four people back out of the trip as well. And so that kind of like added another layer to this self-doubt. And and then, I, of course, I broke my leg and then I was back in New York. And then the program leader of that retreat that I had led sent me back the feedback form. 
of all these participants. And that was also something else that I wasn't expecting because I kind of consider myself in sort of the spiritual world. I, I offer people spiritual food. And so to get feedback and get rated from a consumer on their experience of the spiritual food I was offering, it was just messing with my brain a lot. So I had to really kind of like sit with that. <laughs> and, and this is kind of where I'm getting with this is that as a leader, I think that it's really hard to lead people that don't want to be led. And it's also hard to be a leader to people that come in with their own agenda. And so it's really important that we have a collective, if you want to say a goal or collective more, a collective belief. And it doesn't mean that we're all cookie cutters. Of course, you know, I'm all about celebrating individuality. I'm all about celebrating and, and aspiring to allow our, our unique brilliance to shine through. So it's got nothing to do with that. But the two ingredients that I realized after that whole experience is accountability, that there has to be at some point, some agreement that all of us, you know, are accountable for our experiences that for whatever reason, the situation is in front of me. And now I have a choice in how I'm going to respond, realizing that my response is going to, you know, to affect others positively or negatively. So which is it that I'm choosing? That's the first one. And then the second one is, uh, don't complain, don't explain. <laughs> and that's how I start all of my trainings. That's kind of what I put out to my team. That's what I, I really put that energy out there because I, I feel like it's like, okay, if you're going to come into my orbit, these are the qualities that, you know, need to be embodied. And if not, if those aren't the qualities, then please find your good elsewhere. <laughs> so I think it's really important in leadership that there is a communal agreement, you know, between the leader and the people that are underneath or, or that they're leading. I remember people leaving after we, we took two separate treks with some transition in between. I remember people leaving after the first of those. Yeah. And I remember some of the reasons. I mean, I remember one person who was never present and ultimately he literally walked off the trail and fell down and rolled down into some bushes. Um, and he was just very fortunate he fell where he did because um, there were places where he wouldn't have stopped for hundreds of feet. And then I remember one person said, I just needed to prove to myself that I could do it. And I proved to myself, so now I don't have to finish. And to me, that, that really felt in violation, if you will, of the agreement because we, we had, when we were in Rikahesh, I remember you bringing us all together and really working to establish that communal agreement. One of the other leadership lessons I drew from that trip had to do with the landslide. As we were traveling between the, the destination, if you will, of, of one trek to the starting point of another, we ended up sitting on the side of a road for a day <laughs> because there had been a landslide ahead of us. And my recollection is this was the equivalent of a U.S. interstate. 
in India. It, it was not some little side road. Um, it, was a, it was a major thoroughfare. And so what happened? People pulled to the side of the road. Some were doing laundry in the streams. Some were reading, some were napping. Um, there were buses of pilgrims. And I have pictures of, of these women just joyously dancing. And all I kept on thinking is, if this had happened back in the United States, what a different response it would have been. But I guess one of the leadership lessons for me that came out of that is we can't control the circumstances. We can determine how we respond to them at the individual level and at the leadership level. One of the things that happened is as they had cleared enough of the landslide away for people to walk through, I remember pilgrims on one side were trading buses with pilgrims on the other side so those buses could turn around and the pilgrims could continue on their their trips. And I thought that was just such a, a beautiful lesson of let's look at where the opportunity is in this situation rather than just looking at the d- disruption. It's very profound. And, um, you know, when I broke my leg, you remember Tom who was on our trip, uh, wise Tom. I, I said to Tom, I said, well, <laughs> we have to figure out how to, you know, turn lemons into lemonade here. And Tom just kind of looked at me, came, looked back and he said, why not just enjoy the lemons? <laughs> and that has always stuck with me. <laughs> so, so that's another place I want to go on, on this conversation because you didn't just break your leg, Aaron. <laughs> we had um, trekked up from Gango Tree, which is the last village, if you will, on the main tributary of the Ganges. We had trekked across Gumbuk, which is the glacier that uh, feeds the river. And then we had climbed to Tapovan. We had climbed Tapovan, all of which is above tree level. Yes. <laughs> we had camped on Tapovan overnight and we were beginning our descent. And I'm going to tell my version of the story. And then, <laughs> and then turn it over to you. But as we were descending, and I don't think we were all that far down, all of a sudden I heard a scream from behind me, something to the effect of look out. And as I turned, there was a huge boulder coming down. And we never knew what caused it to come down. It doesn't really matter in a way. It hit you in the thigh. It didn't just break your leg. <laughs> I turn the story over to you. <laughs> yeah, no, it just didn't. It did not just break. It broke, it broke my femur right in half. And, you know, I was in denial about my leg being really broken until I got to Delhi and saw the x-ray. And I almost had a heart attack when I saw the x-ray. Because 
the bones was like parallel to so it broke it and then it kind of like moved up so it was like sitting you know like that and yeah i mean it i don't know which part you want me to talk about specifically but that was i mean there's so many lessons that i drew from that experience i think before we got on here and gone on the live when we were just chatting beforehand, one of the things that I, I told you that I like to do is just really enjoy my life. And I think that in that moment, there was a moment when I really didn't know if I was going to make it through the night because it was, you know, I had, I think I had asked you, I can't remember if you stayed with me or not, or if you had gone, I think you and Tom had gone ahead. I looked at you and I said, go get a helicopter. And, um, <laughs> and so there was Robert and the other Robert, and then, and then this other guy there, I don't recall his name right now, who were sort of taking care of me. And it was clear by three o'clock in the afternoon that there was no helicopter coming. And it was a long time to be sitting there. It was like six hours had passed or something. And which time had gone by very quickly. And I had to real, I realized this could be it. There was no fire for kindling or, 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 you know, for heat, there was no water source and the temperature was quickly dropping and all of our clothes had gone ahead with the porters. So we were just in our, you know, very basic kind of clothes. And there was a point when I thought, I don't know if I'm going to make it tonight and this could be it. And that was sort of like a moment of taking stock of my life and being content with the life that I had led or lived. But then also, you know, ever since then, I always thought like, oh, I've got a second lease on life and to make it count even more so ever since then. I want to pick up on that because it's not like you broke your leg on the side of a hill. <laughs> outside, out, outside of New York City or something. Um, Tom went to the police station, uh, which was halfway back to Gango Tree. And I and, and one other member of, of the group went into Gango Tree to call the U.S. Embassy and to see if we could get a helicopter in to rescue you. And then we had to wait. And the police station actually sent a crew up for you. And I don't know what it's called, but basically it looked like a canoe without the hull. <laughs> but they carried you. It was at least 12 hours from the time that the accident happened until they got you back into Gango Tree. Yeah. And oh, by the way, there was no hospital in Gango Tree. There wasn't even a first aid station. Um, we couldn't get a helicopter. What we got was an ambulance waiting for you. Yeah. And again, for those of us who are listeners, think of a box truck with a stretcher in the back. This is, was not. <laughs> this was not, you know, a teched out ambulance. And oh, by the way, on the way to the hospital you got stopped by another landslide. <laughs> and so it was probably 24 hours from the time of the accident until you even got to the hospital. Yeah, a, a hospital. <laughs> <laughs> and 
And to me, there's another lesson there because, you know, those of us, the, the, Tom went with you, the rest of us uh, spent the night in Gango Tree and we got to the hospital just a few hours after you did. And again, it was a hospital. It was a hospital. It was a hospital where we walked through mud and manure and passed the dogs sleeping in the lobby <laughs> to, get, to get up to see you. And you had made a tough decision. You weren't going to let them operate on you there. You were going to go into Delhi, which meant you were going to wait at least another day. But you had already made arrangements to take care of the rest of us. You weren't just going straight to Delhi. You were going back through Rishikesh to set up the hotel arrangements that we would need. You then went on to the hospital. There is a real servant leadership message in that. I think for all of us that as leaders, even when we have a significant need, sometimes we don't come first. We can't just abandon those people we're leaving to take care of ourselves. That's right. And I think that was another important lesson for me out of that journey. I thank you for recognizing that. I completely forgot about that. <laughs> it's always amazing the little details that each of us remember, you know, in, in our lives and in different situ in collective situations. But when I was in boarding school. I went to an all boys boarding school and there's probably a few different areas where the seeds of leadership were instilled. Definitely. That was a big part. Another part is my yoga and, you know, running my studio and then a retreat center. But a lot of the seeds of, of leadership were instilled in me at that young age when I was going through St. John's boys school of Alberta. And there was one little simple practice. So as a, as an alumnus, as someone who graduated, then returned, I would often help out with, I would go on like some of the trips with them and be a leader, like on, on some of the trips, uh, with the boys. But one of the practices that always stood out and I still practice it to this day at Blue Osa is being the last to eat. And it's, it's a small gesture, but it's kind of like, you want to make sure that other people are, are provided for first. And then you as the leader, you know, take your food. It also, I mean, there's also many other small parts of that as well. It, it teaches you to be patient. It teaches, you know, not to be a slave to your primary needs, but it's also for me, it's, it's a very symbolic way of just making sure other people are taken care of. And that's just been, you know, a big part of how I see the world and my responsibility to people. If I make an agreement to people to take care of them, then I will do everything I can. <laughs> even with, even though my body is fractured. <laughs> um, to make sure people, to make sure that I've lived up to my responsibilities. I think, Aaron, there's just one more lesson I want to draw out of the work that, that I did with you. And that is, you had surgery in New Delhi. They literally had to put a rod 
in your leg to put the bones back in place. And that didn't make for very easy yoga poses. <laughs> and so you came back and you began to teach a whole new form of yoga. The, the sort of COVID term for that is you pivoted. <laughs> but again, that was such an important lesson for me. You didn't say I'm done. You said, here's an obstacle and here's a way around that obstacle. Mm -hmm. And I learned Jin Yoga. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that experience made me slow down a lot. And because I physically couldn't move, and so I had to kind of reframe everything. I remember the very first class that I taught in New York when I came back, and I think I had enough energy to do about one class a week at that moment for a few weeks because healing took a lot of my, literally took a lot of life force energy from me. But I was so happy that I wasn't one of those kinds of teachers who was so addicted to setting up my mat and then demonstrating every pose that I was able, I had some skills to be able to talk people through it, but it also gave me a pause to start looking at the body differently and realizing that the body, you know, needs to serve us as much as we serve it. And so how do we serve the body? Literally, how do we serve the body better? It, yeah, then it in completely informed my teaching and changed my teaching. And I also think that that experience in a very dramatic way, of course, because I always kind of say like my practice of yoga really prepared me for that moment. And I have so much gratitude for meeting my teacher Rod when I met him and Alan, because I feel like their lessons played out verbatim during that whole experience. And so when I came back from India as well, I pivoted, as you said, <laughs> I think really kind of honing in more on the spiritual parts of yoga and embracing those more and really leading with that rather than as a follow-up to the teachings, but rather just really putting them uh, forward in a bigger way. So that makes me think of one more thing I want to add to this. Um, <laughs> I was somewhere in my 50s when we took this trek. And I remember seeing it on your website and reaching out to you and saying, do you think I can do this? Yeah, sure. And basically you said, we all can do this. You need to prepare yourself. You're not just going to get on an airplane and it's going to be okay. And what I realized very quickly is it was not just about physical preparation. There was mental preparation and there was a spiritual preparation. And again, I, I, blogged my preparation and I remember went out to dinner at a Chinese restaurant at some point during that preparation period and uh, was having dinner with a friend and got a fortune cookie and it said balance is more than not falling down <laughs> and that has been a lesson for me 
balance is more than not falling down. And as leaders for ourselves and for the people that work with us and the people that report to us and the people that we work for, maintaining balance in all of its aspects is an important part of leadership responsibility. Aaron, any final lessons you want to share? On leadership? Yeah, there's kind of one because when you told me the topic, one of the things that kind of popped out in my mind when you said, like, what is leadership from a yogic perspective? I think that's kind of the angle that you were asking me about. And I think one of those, what is leadership is leadership is skillful action. And so we look at the Bhagavad Gita, you know, you can even look at the teachings of Jesus Christ, but I'm looking to the Gita more specifically, but all the great masters always said basically to perform your actions skillfully. Krishna said to Arjuna, sharpen your sword of discrimination. So what does that mean in leadership? It means that a lot of, you know, I think a good leader doesn't react, is proactive. A good leader doesn't react to situations. Sometimes they let situations play themselves out and then, you know, come into it with skillful action. And I think that sometimes, you know, there's so much reaction that goes on in the world. And, and I think that is to our detriment. You know, somebody does something to somebody else in pop culture, and then it's like exploding all over the place. And, and then people are waiting like, well, what is your reaction, you know, to this? Well, maybe I'm not going to react. And, and so we need to sometimes hit the pause button and just sit with things. And there's a word in yoga that we talk about like our increasing our ability to sit with something that word is tapas and in, and tapas, you know, means, means a lot of things, but for me in this context, it means just sitting with something. And so, you know, like maybe if you have a team of employees, for example, and your employee says something really rude to you, <laughs> let's just use that. Like, let's just pull that out as, as an example. And so sitting with it can make you feel uncomfortable. Like, you know, don't they ever think about all the good I do for them and, you know, whatever. But there's a, there's a potency of sitting with things because A, you're not reacting. And then B, you know, the, p- my teacher, PRT, Pandaji uh, Rajmani Tiganai always says, the results of tapas is the resplendence of personality. And so when we get a chance to sit with something, then we can transform something that's negative into something that's positive and or constructive. That's for the betterment of people. Coming back to what I said earlier about accountability, we get to choose how we respond to something and then, you know, turn our response into something that can actually better other people. I would say like, that's a huge important quality that I've had to repeat one <laughs> um, because I didn't know that I was going to be working in the hospitality industry. You know, I thought I was going to open up a yoga retreat. I didn't realize I was opening up a yoga hotel and, <laughs> and, so, and, and then how, you know, when I'm working with my team, uh, and gas sometimes is to practice 
sitting with something so that I can respond in a way that's skillful and in a way that's going to be proactive rather than reactive. And I think that that's a very important lesson in the yoga teachings that we can glean and, and start to do things. I think we need to practice skillful action a lot more in our lives, in generally speaking. And it's, that's part of the teaching that I really try to embody. Aaron, thank you so much for this conversation. You're welcome. Thank you, Brian. Thank you.